Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Coram Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today we're talking about the Bible as literature. But first of all, Camille in Long Island. Come on. Man, shout out. Wow. She really came through. Wow. Camille in Long Island, who is a, a listener and fan of the Wednesday Conversation and, and just a wonderful human being. We did meet her. She came to visit a year ago, and t- today she sent us a bunch of pastries. Bethany, oh, yeah. apparently so many pastries that we had to share them with we, non-Wednesday we Conversation We gave them to staff. the rest of the staff because we had an abundance of pastries. So, so thank you, Camille. Thanks, shout Camille. Shout out. Mm-hmm. Man, and also, I guess Camille apparently is working on my request that I made, which is help me understand Long Island. Yes. So I, th- I don't know if she's like writing a paper or what. It, it could, I don't I'm know. excited to see what. But she said she's working I'm on it. I'm excited to so, see what happens. Yeah. So it's going to be great. This is, see, if you're a listener to the Wednesday conversation, mm. we, we give you work to do. This is not <laughs> just a, it's not a podcast where you listen to us. We give you things to do. So. Uh, the Bible. Unless you send snacks. Unless you send snacks. You get a pass, maybe. Well, you kind of get both. You get <laughs> we, we we take your snacks and then also give you assignments. So I guess that's how this works. I'm wearing a sportscaster headset and Dusty's making fun Man. of me because he feels <laughs> like... It's hard to look at you with that thing great. on. I, I, I actually have a lot of preferences about what tools I use for things, and I just wanted to get more... I mean, it's very good. These guys have like huge microphone stands and stuff taking up space. I just have one headset. You're like on college game day right now. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Chris <laughs> and I are up in the booth. Yeah, you're on the field. Yeah, I'm down here reporting on my interviews with coaches. So you look uh, great. Well, that's kind of you. Thanks. I f- I just feel like I'm less encumbered by technology and paraphernalia and more free to open my books and look across the table at you all. So. Chris, uh, this was a topic that you suggested, the Bible's literature, and I love it. It's a wonderful topic, and it's one that probably the average Christian um, needs a little help thinking about. Yeah, this was born out of, uh, we're preaching through Exodus uh, this fall, and as I was prepping for it, uh, just doing some work in the genre of biblical narrative and doing a lot of reading as, what, what does it mean that the Bible's literature, literary conventions, how the Bible uses literature to communicate its message, and I just started geeking out. I read like two or three books on this and just loved it. And I thought this would be a fun thing to talk about. It's the kind of thing you don't really talk about in a sermon. Yeah. And so. Uh, That's there, what this podcast is for. Yeah. Stuff in some ways it's like, yeah. In the yeah. Sermon. It's like, how, how can I communicate some of this stuff to our people and others that might be interested without really bogging down a sermon? So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Okay. So are you saying the Bible's not true? Is that what you're saying? Because you're saying it's <laughs> literature, so it's just not true. Yeah. You know what? This is one of the things that is unfortunate about some of Christian scholarship is that if you look at who's, who does the best work uh, in the Bible as literature outside of guys like, like Leland Riken's a great example of one working within uh, evangelical tradition, but a lot of the best work is done by liberals. Like they have taken the Bible as literature more seriously in some ways. And so unfortunately, when you talk about this topic, that's what immediately people think is, Oh, you must think it's not not true. true. And just a product of, of literature. And it's like, no, both of these two things can be true. And so in this way, I think we actually have some things to learn from maybe more liberal scholars. Excellent. So when you say the Bible is literature, or when we talk about the Bible as literature, what do you mean by that in summary? So that the Bible uses literary conventions. The Bible is, if you look at the entirety of Old Testament, New Testament, 
The Bible uses different types of genre, and each of those genres, those literary types, have specific methods of how they communicate, and those things matter because that's how they communicate their message. And so if you're talking about historical narrative or poetry or an epistle, a letter, a law code, all of those things have particular rules that they use. Uh, And the Bible uses all of those as a way to communicate its message. And each of those rules matter. So for example, biblical narrative uses things like uh, historical detail or dialogue. Why does the Bible do that versus, you know, maybe just some like encyclopedic chronicle? So asking the question, why does the Bible use the literary genres that it does actually helps us understand the true message that's being communicated and uh, trying to understand why the Bible does it the way it does it uh, is a good question to ask of any text. So I hear you saying, I don't read Philippians the same way I would read Exodus. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And understanding genre helps us interpret and keeps us on you know, on, on the track, so to speak. Uh, and I think you see where this can get sideways is when we try to read, let's say wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is this wonderful, wonderful text that so many people have butchered because they've tried to read it like Philippians. Oh, the author is just speaking sort of these direct statements the same way Paul wrote in Philippians. And it's like, well, if you read it that way, you're going to get real confused because he's all over the place. You're going to think he's like schizophrenic or manic depressive or something rather than understanding, you know, wisdom literature has a certain flow and the, the way it's um, put together is meant to enhance sort of this wrestling and pondering of, of what is true. And so when you read it through the, the correct genre, it helps you make sense of what this person is saying. Let's talk about a few examples that would help the average listener sort of enter into what you're saying. So you're saying you, you got into this because you're getting ready to preach Exodus. Mm-hmm. So what are some places like in Exodus or in, in pick a narrative and tell us, okay, here's a place where understanding that we're talking about literature helps us make better sense of the text. Yeah. So one of the things, let's talk about biblical narrative. So uh, the Old Testament is predominantly made up of narrative and the narrative style has particular characteristics. One of the things that you'll notice if you know, you've read the Old Testament is repetition consistently there is repetition within biblical narrative. Now, what is the purpose of that? Now there's different theories here. Some, some would say, well, this is an example of how oral tradition was put together in, into uh, written tradition. And so within oral tradition, you had to repeat things a lot. So people would remember things. There's probably some truth to that, but at the same time, if you pay attention and, and uh, this is one of the things, uh, so Robert Alter is one of the scholars that has done some of the best work in this. And again, a liberal guy, but what he does is he takes the literature seriously. And he said, you know, the, those who wrote the Bible knew what they were doing. They weren't just sort of haphazardly throwing things together and didn't notice the rep. Oh, there's a lot of repetition. Miss that. Uh, they, they put the repetition in there purposefully. So, uh, a good example of this in Exodus is you'll see God state, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to save and he, you know, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you to the land of milk and honey and the land of, the, you know, list out all these people. And so that happens multiple times within chapters three through six. And what uh, biblical narrative forces us to do is why is the repetition there? And so one of the things that uh, Robert Alter is good at pointing out is, hey, if you read that repetition 
And if you pay attention to the differences, because none of it is exactly the same, it's not necessarily verbatim, but if you pay attention to the differences, the little subtle things, the biblical narrative, biblical authors were emphasizing those little details through repetition. So if I read what God said in chapter three, then I go to chapter six. You're, if, if you're not paying attention, oh, this is just repetition. But if you pay attention, you'll notice there's little details that are added. And that is what comes to the forefront. And so repetition actually becomes a way of highlighting certain things. So that, I mean, that's one example. Another example would be uh, narr- or, um, dialogue. So the whole with, book of Job. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so within dialogue, the dialogue is used in particular ways uh, with certain, again, kind of certain rules to help you uh, see what is being emphasized. So within biblical narrative, dialogue is one of the things that if you want to know what's, go- you know, hey, if you want to know what a character's like, if you want to know the point of something, pay attention to what's being said. And so um, um, as of our recording, I'm about ready to preach on the conversation God has with Moses uh, on the mountain reveals himself to the burning bush. And if you watch that narrative, it's fascinating what happens. God speaks, you know, a block of text, Moses, one, just one question. God says some significant stuff, significant stuff, Moses, one line. And so you get this, if you pay attention to the pattern of dialogue, you start to see uh, the character traits of Moses emerge versus this covenant-keeping, promise-making God versus this really scared dude. And what uh, the seeing the Bible as literature helps us see is that, hey, that might not have been the entirety of the conversation. Like Moses might have said other things, God might have said other things, but in framing it that way, what comes to the fore? Here is God making these incredible promises, his greatness, and here is Moses sort of shrinking in the moment only to eventually find confidence in the Lord. That's what is that's what comes out in the dialogue. So if we if we can see that the the biblical author framed the dialogue, edited the dialogue, if you will, in such a way as to emphasize a point. That's a, that's how we use the Bible as literature to begin to interpret. Is filmmaking a, a rough analogy here? The way a director would take a screenplay and and film the scenes in a way that through lighting or through dialogue or through characterization is, is putting emphasis in certain places. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, I think it's a great analogy. It's a, it's a way that a lot of people, modern people can sort of enter into this and say, okay, when I watch a movie, I understand that I'm seeing there's something I've seen the director's hand and yeah. how the movie's yeah. made. Yeah. It's not just a script that's getting acted out by some actors. The director is shaping and showing his creativity in how he shapes the story. Yeah. Cause remembering that, the, the history of scripture, like the history it contained in scripture, is theological history. So it's selectively edited, and it's also uh, put together in a literary way in order to emphasize the theological meaning. So it's not just reporting facts, as much as it does do that, but all of those facts, all of those events, you're meant to see what is the significance of these things and how does it do it, not just by didactically telling you, here's what you need to take away from this conversation between God and Moses rather artistically framing it so that that meaning comes out, not just to, and and this again too, it is not just to hit your head, but actually to work over in your heart and, and, and to, to point to, you know, subtleties that you can't just um, grasp by just kind of straightforward didactic explanation or encyclopedic uh, reporting of events. And so 
scripture's working on us in multiple on multiple layers and levels. The same thing with movies, well edited movies, well put together um, scenes. They work both kind of didactically in some ways, but they're working on us emotionally um, and, and in other ways that are, are trying to all sort of come together to to have this imprint on you. And scripture does the same thing. How does this, <clears throat> what's your concern for why the average Christian needs to have this category? How does this help us appreciate the Bible more or read the Bible more intelligently or be better hearers of the scriptures? You know, why, why does understanding its literary quality help us be better disciples? So again, I'm, I'm largely using biblical narrative here as an example, but this goes for any, any genre. And it first goes back to think most basically goes back to your point, Dusty, that understanding the genre helps us to understand the framework we need to use if we're going to rightly understand and read it. But I would say So often we approach the Bible very in a very utilitarian way, uh, which isn't entirely wrong. We're trying to receive the truth that it speaks to us. But the Bible is communicating to us, not in a utilitarian way, but in a, in a very live, real, this, this, is, this is the word of God living and active, and it's meant to uh, engage us fully as humans. And so helping us slowing down and, and seeing the literary quality, I think we begin to um, open ourselves up to that full receptivity of, of what, how the Bible is meant to speak to us. And it's not, I'm not, you know, talking about some like weird, mysterious, mystical, like uh, type in, in engagement with the Bible, but I am talking about, you know, if, if you see a good movie, if you read a good book, the impact it leaves on you is it's like this whole scale impact. You can sometimes see it can get feel it in your being. That's the way scripture is meant to engage us. And if we're not slowing down to appreciate those subtle beauties and, and the way that it has been crafted together, I think we, we miss out on the fullness of what scripture is trying to do to us. I remember when I became a Christian in high school, which it should be noted, didn't read a book to its entirety <laughs> until I became a Christian. And that book I found in the church lost and found before they were giving everything to the goodwill or something. So that was the first book I read, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And so I stayed because of that book, I drifted towards Paul's letters. And I also think because of wiring and personality, yeah, yeah. I just appreciated Paul's writing. It was very black and white, very just tell me what to do. And I remember trying to venture into the Old Testament, which I don't believe that my church was doing very much anyway, and just feeling like, I don't really, I don't understand. I don't get it. And this is before I understood anything about literature. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't an academic already. So it's not like when you were teaching English, Chris, I was really paying attention, yeah. you know, so. <laughs> you were that kid. So anyway, this is really helpful, I think, especially if you're a new Christian, to just really understand the Bible as literature. Yeah, and, and I think, like anything, you have to learn. You have to take the time to to understand how to engage um, a particular text. And so I, I'm not pretending that this, you know, this is something that you just, you know, snap your fingers and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're getting all of it. I mean, even for me, um, both, you know, background in literature, but then, you know, studying the Bible for a long time, uh, 
just this study of Exodus, have there, there's just been some new things and new appreciation and, and learning a lot more about biblical narrative and, and how to handle it and read it and appreciate the new subtleties and nuances. Uh, I mean, another example, Bob, too, is there, there is a, just a, a, it's very efficient in some ways in the detail that it shares. Like it, it's not, you, compared to modern literature, you don't get a lot of insight into what a person's thinking and what they're feeling. You don't get like very vivid descriptions of this, that, and the other. I mean, there's places, but for the most part, it's just very terse in how it describes things. And that too is a purposeful move. And, and this is um, the one of the things that, again, Robert Alter points out is that one of the genius of biblical narrative, which is in some ways unique to um, ancient literature, is by not filling in all the details, it creates this space of wonder and wrestle. And if you think about that as an evangelical Christian, like what the spirit is supposed to be doing there and um, how how there's a, there's a place of pondering and reflecting and kind of these gaps and this silence that is meant to cause you to wrestle and it, again, it just starts to fill out the nature of all the way scripture is supposed to work on you at the same time, leading you to clear truth. So this is, again, this is not just like open-handed stuff, but there is a, it's just a different pace to how we are to read that I think a lot of times, especially modern readers, we, we don't appreciate. I think modern people do, however, tend to appreciate a good story. Yeah. Yeah. It's why the Lord of the Rings movies are really big and Star Wars, you know, there's, there's really good storytelling. And so even for people who are less familiar with the Bible, the reality that like a story well told, a well-crafted narrative, we love because it captures us in all the ways you're talking about. It's something more than intellectual. And so if we can apply that and say, hey, that's what the scriptures are. That's what the story of God's work through, especially the Old Testament, is supposed to be it takes a little bit of knowledge and intelligence to sort of know how to enter into it and make sense of the genres and how the Bible is laid out, which is, as you were saying, Dusty, the reason that for, for a lot of people, when they come to the Old Testament, I just, I just don't have the tools to like know how to enter into it because it's very different. But uh, as my mentor, Richard Pratt in seminary used to say, he used to call it the larger Testament because he was dealing with all these people who, you know, had come to come to faith and they like had read the New Testament. And so he just would always say, in the larger Testament and then yeah. go on to talking because he just <laughs> want to make the point like, Hey, most of the Bible is narrative yeah. and poetry yeah. and wisdom literature. It's not epistles. So unless you know how to read that, you're not going to be a good reader of the Bible. Um, a couple of books I've found really helpful. Actually, Richard wrote a book called he gave us stories. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is a simple straightforward book of how to, how to read scenes in old Testament mm -hmm. narrative. So it's like, how do you pay attention to characters, dialogue, scene setting, all these things. So it's not, at the level of like a Robert Alter, but it does help just say, here's some tools to read narrative. Yep. Yep. And then the book that blew my mind in a similar way, I think to how Robert Alter is affecting you with Exodus is John Salehammer's book, the meaning of the Pentateuch, where he treats the whole Pentateuch as a narrative. Yep. And he says, you know, sometimes we think about Genesis and then Exodus and Levi, but if we think about the whole five books and the way they are put together, Salehammer's contention is that the Pentateuch has what he calls seams in it. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the seams and the way they're stitched together, <clears throat> that they're all pointing us to the Messiah, not by the explicit language of the text, but by how the book is put together. So he points to, for instance, why when Jacob blesses his sons, does the blessing of Judah get more text than all the other blessings? Yeah, yep, it's because exactly. it's because he's the writer's teaching us to pay attention that Judah is going to be yep. the tribe that 
the Messiah is going to come from. There's all these little hints in the text itself, in the literary structure of the text that point us to really interesting things that are setting up the meaning of the story. Yeah. And so as we, you know, those are those kinds of things where you can read Genesis, whatever chapter that is, uh, 48 or 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, you could read that, you know, a dozen times and totally not catch the, if you're not paying attention to the literary quality, you just read through the text and you're like, okay, cool. Jacob's blessing his sons. Kind of weird. I don't know. We don't do that here. You know, it's not yeah, how our culture yeah. works. When dad dies, he doesn't gather everybody around and pronounce a blessing on them. Yeah. And if you're not paying attention to like, which pieces of the text take up more space and how is the blessing given and what is, what is happening in the narrative? Yeah. Then you just kind of miss that piece. Yeah. But it's really f- fascinating when you start paying attention to what the literature brings forward and yeah. how it's written. Yeah. Another example of similar to what you describe is when you do recognize that there is a, a terseness to most of the detail and, and how the narrative kind of clips along when all of a sudden it slows down and it hones in on a particular scene and gives uh, multiple chapters. It gives a long length to this one episode. And then it just starts, jumps ahead another, you know, 15, 20 years or whatever. It's like, why did it just slow down? You know, it's not like, oh, we just have more, more information about that than we do about the other things. It's like, no, you're supposed to pay attention to this. It's, there's a reason why this is getting more detail, whether it's, you know, pointing to a particular theme overall or the importance of a particular character. And so those little ebbs and flows, I mean, it's again, going back to a movie, there are times when the narrative kind of jumps forward, but then there are certain scenes that there's a lot more detail, a lot more happens and they're key scenes. And so the, that those are literary moves by the author, both the divine author and the human author to, to again, enhance particular things. How does understanding that God gave us his revelation as literature affect our thinking about the nature of our faith? Yeah, this is, uh, I think this is one area that's been really blowing my mind and I'm, I'm still trying to put good words to it. But so if, if we, if we take the Bible as literature seriously, um, there's a reason why when, when a lot of liberals do that, they see sort of creative elements. Cause when we t- typically think about creative literature, we think of um, maybe artificial, artificially constructing details and data and putting things together in a way that is meant to, that, that has, you know, particular ideological purpose. It's fiction, yeah. not nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when we think of it that way, it's easy to understand why people could, could run that direction. But if we stop and think, man, what if, what if our God actually has written history, redemptive history artistically? Like, like, what if the, the, the way God has, um, governed history has this beauty to it, has these repetitive moments, what, you know, just as one example that are meant to draw our attention to particular truths, especially about Christ. What, what if it says that God is an artist himself and that life and history have these, it's not just raw data. It's not just these events that have happened, but there's, there's actually meaning and purpose behind it. I think it points further to the sovereignty of God, but also the creativity of God and that God is intimately connected in our world. And he cares about how these things are playing out. And so I think it speaks to how near God is. I think it speaks to who God is, God's power, but then also again, um, and this is a really, this might feel like a tangential example, but I think it proves my point. 
I once was having a conversation with a, a former student of mine who was like a brilliant, it's, you know, scientist. And he, he told me, you know, if, if everything was just running on efficiency, trees would be black. Like they wouldn't have any color. He's like, the fact that there's color shows that God is more interested than just efficiency. And I think that again speaks like God isn't just trying to get information like in your head, but he's actually engaging the whole you. And then there's a whole, an embodiedness to it. And there's just layers upon layers of that. Again, I'm trying to grab words for this, but that God's word represents the wholeness of how he relates to us. And so that's what I, I really want us to, to appreciate just who our God is because of the way he has put his word together, how the art, artistry of it and the beauty of it and the, that he's used multiple genres and that those genres hit our being in various ways. And that, that's who our God is. So if, if our appreciation for the, the literariness of the Bible helps us understand and see the magnitude of our God, then I think even if you don't understand all of it, you just appreciate that. I think that's going to deepen your experience with scripture. You're kind of tripping me out that trees are black. What if trees yeah. would be black if the world ran on efficiency? That's yeah. blowing my mind right <laughs> that's there. That's a good line. Yeah. I mean, what I hear you saying is the Lord gave us the scriptures to move in us, not just remain in our cognition. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to, to put stir it. our affections to yeah. get, to get all of us, Yeah, to get into all of us yeah. and to see ourselves as a part of this, this thing. We're not removed from the story. We're actually in the story. You know, we're not necessarily in that part of the story, but we're, we're being carried along by the same narrative and that we're, if we see ourselves there, that again is meant to move us. I think there's a few implications here. One more for the the average ordinary Christian. I think just having this as a category and beginning as I read my Bible to attend to the literary qualities really helps. And, you know, entering in in just the most basic ways, like you're talking about, what do I see in the dialogue? Where do I see repetition? How does the author seem to be setting up this character? I'm thinking in first Samuel about the characterization of Saul versus David what do you just learn about Saul just from reading the story mm-hmm. and how he interacts versus what do you learn about David just from reading the story? Um, even the Psalms, when we think about how, you know, Mark, Mark Futado says that the Psalms move from lament to praise, that there's like a movement in the Psalms. You have Psalms one and two, which are obviously set at the beginning for a reason. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the path of the wicked. And then Psalm two, why do the nations rage? And then they get us all the way to Psalm 150, which is a Psalm of praise. So, there's, I think an average Bible reader just paying attention to like, oh yeah, there's some intention here in how the narrative is put together and how the structure of the text is put together. That can help. Um, I think for Bible teachers, pastors, people who are going to, to be proclaiming and teaching the Bible, they need to grow skills in this area yeah. because this help, it, it matters for our interpretation and for our hermeneutics whether we're attending to the literary qualities or not. If we're not, we're going to miss certain things. And we're going to be brittle in areas where we should be flexible and maybe flexible in areas where we should be more firm. Um, so I think for, for those of us teaching the Bible, understanding its literary qualities needs to, needs to be significant. And I think the other thing that's interesting about this whole category of the Bible is literature, Chris, is I actually think it's a great missionary category. Because the fact that you can go down to UNO and take a Bible as literature course in the religion department taught by a 
professor who's not a Christian and doesn't believe any of this is the word of God, but is going to teach you to appreciate the literary qualities of the Bible. That provides a great entry point for people around us who might not believe that Jesus is the son of God, but they do appreciate good literature. And we can say, hey, yeah, that's, let's start there. Let's start with a conversation about the Bible as a literary work. And, and then let's hope that through that conversation, perhaps God moves someone along to the place where they're willing to actually be more attentive to the author of the work yeah, or who we believe the author of the work is, uh, God himself. Yeah, because back to your point about stories, I mean, if you can get into a conversation, hey, let's just take the story seriously. Leave aside the, you know, higher criticism and, you know, all, all of that that tries to deconstruct it. Let's just take the story, look at the story and be able to, to show the beauty and what resonates just at a human level. I mean, that's opening doors for conversations about the gospel because you're, you're getting at the heart. You're, it's starting to resonate at a deeper level. And it's like, well, what if this is true? You know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's where C.S. Lewis is so brilliant. Like, why did he see the power of myth? And sometimes people call, you know, he calls scripture true myth and people are just like, oh, myth means it's not true. It's like, well, no, myth is this story that's, this is what scholars have always recognized is that myth is the story that speaks at this deep level of longing and people are drawn to that kind of thing. So even if you have a conversation with your non-Christian friend and, and right there, they're just, okay, let's just, it's myth. Okay, I'll grant that to you for a second. Let's just talk about this myth and work through it and how that begins to open the door um, and begin to prompt certain things. I, I, I absolutely agree. I think there's some beautiful missional implications of this um, for, for engaging scripture with non-Christians. Well, and I think beyond evangelism, I actually think the appreciation of the Bible as literature is just important for civilization and yeah. for being cultured because the because the Bible has affected us so much other literature and art in the history of the world. There's no way to see a movie and understand it or read a book and understand it. Anything that's been produced in the last 1500 years yeah. has the Bible somewhere as a source or, you know, assumes a familiarity with the stories of the Bible. Um, and so even just appreciating its literary qualities and us being the church being a place that holds it up and says, look, whether you believe this is the word of God or not, can we at least appreciate it's one of the greatest works of literature ever produced in human history? That that actually is meaningful for the world around us yeah. and for the culture yeah. we live in and for people becoming good human beings who can appreciate meaningful work. Yeah. So besides sitting down, you know, and I'm opening up to like Isaiah, besides understanding right away, besides asking the question, what kind of literature is Isaiah? What are some other literary tools that I should have in my toolbox as I'm just reading, you know, like if I'm going through a Bible reading plan, and I land in Jeremiah, what do I need to know? Well, first question is just what genre am I reading? So prophecy. So you're going to have certain conventions of prophecy and you can, a good study Bible will point you in some of these directions. Honestly, if you have a good study Bible, usually they're going to tee you up and say, Hey, in prophets, you're going to always pay attention to repetition. You're going to pay attention to imagery. You're going to notice for what metaphors the prophet's using, who's the prophet speaking to, what else is going on in the historical period when the prophet is at work. So if you're in Jeremiah, you're going to want to understand what's going on with uh, Babylon and with exile and all of these things. So I think the first question that I want readers to ask is just what part of the Bible am I in and what genre am I reading? And that's a, that does, that sounds like a complicated question if you never asked it, but actually it's a very simple question. There's the, you're either reading history and narrative, you're reading poetry, you're reading prophecy, 
or you're reading wisdom literature. Generally, those are your major categories in the Old Testament with some nuance here and there, apocalyptic and things like that. So I think just, just starting there, and actually, Chris, maybe even starting with the narrative books is the better place to start. Because when you get in the prophets, you're getting God's word to his people at a particular moment in history. And so understand the history is important, first of all. Just like, what's what's the story that these people are living in? And so that that is a helpful place to start. And the, the great thing, too, about engaging biblical narrative is you you have the tools. You may not realize you do, but you learn them in elementary school. Yep. How you find the you know the setting of a story, the rising action, the climax, the resolution, like these basic just kind of following the plot arc of a story. If you can do that, and and if you can you know trace that through through a particular story and passage of scripture, you're going to gain significant understanding. You might not understand necessarily all the details, but you're going to be able to get into hey, what is, what is this story trying to drive home? What are the the kind of the pieces that are building to that climax, you're going to be well on your way to engaging the literariness of scripture, as well as understanding what it is intending to, to communicate to you. So, I mean, I think in many ways, this is just a, you know, also a, a plug for, Hey, those skills you learned in elementary school, those are good. Use those, <laughs> bring those to the script, you know, bring those to the scriptures and, and it'll be beautiful what you, what you encounter. Well, and Dusty, you asked like, what tools do I need? I think I'm trying to even shift the question to just say, actually, I think you just need to read. And as you read, use those elementary school skills. And I'm thinking particularly about there's a reason that, you know, stories like Cain and Abel, David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba. There's reasons that like there are stories that are so famous in the Bible because they capture a five-year-old's imagination and they capture a 45-year-old's imagination. They're just powerful stories. And so if you can, I think, a, I think a good tool or a starting point is to take a story like David and Goliath or Cain and Abel and go read that story and just do what you just said, Chris. Just start start reading it, not just for like, okay, this guy killed this other guy. <laughs> Move on to the next page. But wh- how's the story told? What do I see and just how the narrative seems to flow and what the author is saying and not saying? And as you just attend to sort of like, as you meditate, I guess is what I'm saying and and spend a little more time attending to the way the story is told and not just the events of the story. That's how you begin to sort of become tuned into some of these things. And obviously there's some other resources you can find books and things on this, but I think just reading slowly and meditatively with an attentiveness to the detail of the story is a great place to start. So Christian, Embrace the Bible as literature and uh, and read it as such and enjoy the story, the way the story is told, the divine and human author, and the work that both are doing to shape the narrative. Thanks for teeing up this topic for us, Chris, and helping us enter into it. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We'd love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.